From the Southern Oral History Program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, this is Press Record, the podcast about the joys and challenges of learning history by talking to those who lived it. I'm Rachel Seidman. And I'm Carol Prince. This month's episode focuses on oral history as a tool for movement building. First, you'll hear from Professor Dan Kerr, who I interviewed about his experience mobilizing in Cleveland around homelessness. Next, you'll hear about a workshop I attended in Charleston, South Carolina on oral history and movement building. And then you'll hear some audio clips from attendees talking about their own work. Finally, we'll hear a segment of an interview with Linda Upton Hill from the SOHP archive. So why do you think that it's important for us to talk about oral history as an organizing tool here at the SOHP? Well, I think this concept of oral history and its connection to activism is really related to the very roots of the program. When Jacqueline Dowd Hall was first getting her start back in the 1970s, She was really interested in this idea of a usable past, of understanding history in a way that it actually could be useful to activists. So she was always motivated by that belief that history and people's experiences in the past could be useful to those working on the ground today. So it's really woven into the long history of the Southern Oral History Program. And I think there is such richness in our archives in terms of strategies that people have used and things that they've tried that have worked and not worked. And then we've just been hearing such wonderful conversations with our colleagues and others around the country who have been utilizing oral history as a tool that it struck us as a really great conversation that we could share with others. So the idea of just doing one episode, being like, okay, here we're going to do oral history and movement building, and this will be our one episode of press record, and there we go, we took care of movement building. So you and I had talked a little bit about doing press records first mini-series, which mm-hmm. is pretty exciting. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. I mean, of course, several of our episodes already, we've talked about LGBTQ life and feminist movements and, you know, things. Right. It's hard to talk about uh, SOHP's research without talking about movements. I mean, you said woven into the very fabric of the SOHP, right? So, But I think we're trying to focus even more directly, at least this month, on oral history as a tool for movement building, not just recording the stories of people who have worked in movements. But yeah, the idea of doing a mini-series that can kind of unfold over time. I think that's why I'm excited to kind of get into the segments, because... Like you said, I mean, there's doing oral histories with people who have been in social movements, and then there's thinking about the uses of oral history outside the classroom, outside the academy, as an organizing tool. And in preparation for this episode, I've gotten to talk to some really wonderful, innovative people who have thought about ways to do this. So that's exciting.
Well, one of the first people who came to mind when we were starting to think about oral history as a tool for movement building is our colleague, Dan Kerr. Dan is the director of the public history program at American University and has done pretty amazing work with people who are experiencing homelessness in Cleveland. Right. And I remember when I was in your class last spring, we actually read Dan Kerr. And so I was really excited to interview him. His journey to oral history is really interesting. And that was one of the first questions that I asked him during our phone interview was, how did you get involved in anti-eviction activism and movement building around homelessness? And so this is what he said. I really got interested in this kind of work when I was in Egypt studying abroad. It was really at that point while I was in Cairo that I really started reading about the history of poor people's movements in the United States. When I came back, I heard about the squatters movement in New York City and became very interested in that because they were taking over abandoned buildings primarily as a means to provide housing for people. And that was really appealing to me as I graduated from college and was somewhat disillusioned with academia. So I went to New York City and essentially got involved and participated in the squatters movement for several years, where we took over buildings, fixed them up, culminating in 1995 when on Memorial Day, uh, a thousand of us gathered in front of those buildings and built barricades, fought off the police who had helicopters and even a tank. But it was kind of my last moment of primarily seeing myself as an activist. It's also kind of the moment where I started really thinking through the background history telling that went along into building the mobilization that made that possible. A thousand people don't just show up to resist an eviction. And so that's when I really went back to graduate school and, and really started thinking more carefully about oral history as a tool for movement building. I went back to Cleveland rather than actually going and living in the shelters or actually living in the encampments, which is kind of my approach with the squats. It really dawned on me that my background and my experience would make being in that shelter a very different kind of experience you know, at a certain point, you just have to acknowledge and recognize your social position. And, and rather than try and pretend you're someone who you're not, going uh, into the project as you are. And people who who are in the shelters already with oral history can articulate their own experiences, their own strategies and interpretations and analyses. People certainly had talked about their experiences in the shelter with one another. But I kind of created an artificial space being an oral historian and by bringing recording equipment to think about what these conditions are. At the very first time I went down, I, I kind of followed some of the advice of making the recorder as inobtrusive as possible. Very quickly, I realized that that wasn't actually being very helpful. And that's where I really embraced the approach to you know, bring video cameras, make sure that actual interviews that I was doing were going to be accessible and shown to other people who were experiencing homelessness in Cleveland. And the idea there was it's a very different kind of interview if they understand that one of the primary audiences for their interview will be their peers. So one of the questions I was really eager to ask Dan was a question about life history interviews, because... My introduction to oral history at the SOHP 
it's been really grounded in this idea of a life history interview. You start by interviewing someone about their childhood and you go from there. But I had read from his work that he really did not take that approach in Cleveland for deliberate reasons. I'm not inherently opposed to the life history But I do feel that there has been a mistaken idea that oral history is only a life history approach. First of all, people are are very protective of their privacy, that especially people that live their lives in such public spaces, protection of their privacy is even more magnified than among people who do have housing. So I, you know, lived with people for several years and knew nothing about their own personal past experiences. And people intentionally didn't ask each other those questions as a squatter. But when I first started bringing the recorder, I started doing life histories. And the narratives I got were ones where people essentially talked about their fall into the depths of homelessness and how they were going to struggle. And the way that they were going to struggle to get out of homelessness was a very individual one, and that they were going to have to distinguish themselves against the other homeless. In one of these interviews, the guy was giving me this narrative. This is kind of what made me think carefully about this. He's telling me about personal struggles and how he's trying to help himself. Then he looks at me, he's like, I don't even know why I'm telling you this, because you don't have anything to offer me. When he said that, It struck me that these are narratives that really are the kinds of narratives that people have to tell in order to access social services as they go into case interviews in order to try and get into transitional housing. You know, that I am worthy of these services. I acknowledge my failing. And this is how I'm setting myself out against my peers. And that was where I really was like, well, what would they say if they knew that their peers were listening to this? The other side of it was... I realized that what I was interested in wasn't so much in studying the individuals, but having individuals really think through from their personal experiences, what were the larger kind of systemic changes that were shaping their lives? And that really was influenced by my reading of major figures in the field of popular education, such as Paulo Freire. The idea of actually creating a shared conversation through these interviews and through drawing on personal experiences depended upon having themes that were developed in these conversations. And so the idea was for folks to talk about an aspect of their lives that is shared, the experience of homelessness. I thought, okay, what we can do is ask people, what do you think are the causes in the history of homelessness? What's your analysis of that? And that then became a question that people could come together and debate and listen to one another, or people who were experiencing homelessness, and would create a space for shared dialogue and ultimately movement. People reflected upon um, what were the kind of major themes that they saw emerging out of people's answers. Out of those things, two of them emerged as really the most significant and important ones. The rise of the day labor industry and the rise of the shelters and the conditions in the shelters, which wasn't something that any of the homeless advocates were organizing around. We started really focusing in on those two themes and then organizing more workshops. And then out of those workshops, people formed what became the Day Laborers Organizing Committee, a residence committee within the emergency shelter that started demanding changes and 
So those then became kind of the themes that ended up creating significant mobilizations that emerged out of the oral history project. And I don't think that would have happened if it, they had just been individual life histories and, and that the interviews hadn't really focused on the themes. I think Dan's approach is really fascinating, and what it shows is that the audience that you're thinking about when you do oral history needs to shape your approach. So, Carol, you talked about how here at the SOHP, we always start with people's childhood or even their their grandparents or their parents, people who came before them. And one of the reasons we do that is because our main focus is building an archive that will be in the library for generations to come. And we know that researchers will come along with different research questions than the one we're starting with. So we always have the sort of long-term archival purpose of the interview front and center in our head. Dan's primary purpose with this project was movement building, and that shaped his approach to interviewing in a different way. So I just, I think that's really interesting that we need to be conscious of what's our goal Uh, And how can the way we structure our interviews best support those goals? So one of the last questions that I asked Dan was how oral historians can think about shaping their research projects if they're particularly interested in movement building or activism or just, you know, justice-minded oral historians. And this is what he said. I'm always reticent to say what should or should not be done, but I do think that the first and foremost thing is to kind of figure out and identify who are the communities you're working with and why are you working with those communities. You know, I was working with people experiencing homelessness just because I felt it was important to to be in solidarity with them as actors rather than just as a population that needed to be served. You know, so for example, when we had the Occupy Wall Street movement, which, you know, was really wonderful in a lot of ways, but it also exposed these divisions and separations as people who were activists and had similar backgrounds to myself set up encampments in public parks to protest the ravages of 21st century capitalism. But they found that there were already people living in those parks and that it wasn't really easy to bridge those two very different communities, you know, that there was a lot of awkwardness and difficulty. And to me, that's that's not bad. That's, in fact, really kind of the space out of which solidarity needs to be built. And I think that's really what we need to be thinking about as we're thinking about the communities we work in. They're going to be messy. There's going to be a lot of ugliness. There's going to be ways in which we realize our own ugliness, right? So that's important. And, and then I guess I tend to think kind of a generative theme approach works better for structuring collective conversation about particular issues. I do think those generative themes have to emerge out of dialogue within community, you know, but to get at that, you do have to start just doing interviewing and asking sometimes just the wrong questions that you then you learn more as you draw upon people's particular analyses of their lives. I do think that there does need to be a concerted effort to organize and create physical spaces where people can come together to actually discuss themes. You know, that just requires organizing. 
And that's something as facilitators of projects we can do, but we do have to figure out, you know, what, what it is that we have to offer. I think that is one of the things that we can and should offer is to make sure we have the spaces within communities where those interviews can be presented to address the needs and ends of the communities we're working in. So, Carol, I'm just curious, um, that sounded like it was a really rich and varied interview with Dan, who is clearly doing work that's different from the kind of traditional oral history approach. What do you feel like you took away from that conversation? I think the idea of doing things and that you're constantly reflecting on why you're doing them and that it's sort of a balancing act. And so rather than like, you know, I'm going to do these oral history interviews and then I'm going to, you know, I have these interviews and I have this data and I'm going to walk away with the data and write what I want to write. And that, you know, how he got to the point he did was really through the process of reflecting, taking a step back. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Well, and listening yeah. to the people he was interviewing yeah. who sort of yeah. told him he was right. approaching things the wrong way. I know. I think it changes a lot about what public history is, especially the potential for what public history can be. One thing I want to be sure to mention is that Dan Kerr has a new article in the Oral History Review, and it's called Alan Nevins is Not My Grandfather, The Roots of Radical Oral History Practice in the United States. And we will link information to it on our website. So, Carol, a couple of weekends ago, I know you you got in your car and you did the five- or six-hour drive down to Charleston, South Carolina. Why did you want to go there? Well, I really love road trips. (laughs) (laughs) I do. I do really love road trips. But I saw an email about there being this workshop on oral history and movement building and was really curious, especially because we had just discussed the theme that this podcast was going to be on oral history and activism. I'd also never been to Charleston. One of the facilitators of the workshop, Marina Lopez, hosted me, which was incredibly generous of her. The next morning, I attended a workshop at the Citadel. We should say that Carrie Taylor, who's the director of the Citadel's oral history program, is an illustrious alum of the Southern Oral History Program. He is. So a lot of the workshop was sort of the basics of oral history, what kind of equipment you should use and what kind of questions to ask and how to interpret oral history interviews. You know, when we're thinking about oral history and movement building, this is a long conversation. This is nothing new. Uh, They've developed in the post-war period in tandem, you know, these ideas of, you know, documenting the past, but also wanting that to feed back into the movement. We also got to hear, and this was my favorite part of the workshop, was hearing from other people about what brought them there. So during our lunch break, I went around and asked, you know, what's your name and what brought you to this workshop and how are you thinking about oral history and activism for your own projects? I'm Carrie Taylor. I uh, teach American history here at the Citadel, and I'm one of the co-facilitators and director of the Citadel's oral history program. Yeah, I'm Darren Lee Calhoun II. I am a race and social justice initiative coordinator for the uh, College of Charleston and Avery Research Center for African American History and Culture. My name is Jennifer Stevens, and I'm an organizer with Girls Rock Charleston. Uh, we're a grassroots 
organization that works with girls and transgender youth. My name is Tuli Beresford, and I'm a pastor at St. Barnabas Lutheran Church, and I do campus ministry at the Citadel. I think the real driver uh, has been the uptick in protest in, in the Charleston area, for sure. Among kind of local activists, it's been nonstop activity. The thrust of that work has been around demanding substantive reform to address issues of racism and poverty that we think provide important context to both Emanuel and to the killing of Walter Scott. So this effort grows out of Marina Lopez and my own perspective as historians and documentarians and thinking about, well, you know, we need to begin to document these experiences. You know, many, many, many new people who'd been alienated from politics getting involved for the first time. And so we wanted to document that, but then also to think about how the process of oral history could be used then to build even stronger movements. So conducting oral history then becomes intervention into the, the process. Locally, I've done numerous oral histories. Uh, one one of my expertise within oral history are interviewing elders. And we have to get these stories because one thing we notice with our elders, they're taking a lot of stories to the grave with them. We need to get those histories taken down. And one thing we need to do is get our youth involved within this as well so they can start connecting bridging these gaps between generations and show that we're not really that far much apart. You know, So if we can get the students to come along and interview some of these elders and start connecting these stories together, um, we definitely start building that gap. And us within the academy, we need to build within our communities. Um, a lot of times, especially within the area of Charleston, as you see where the Citadel is, it's in a very far gentrifying um, area of Charleston right now on the east side, College of Charleston, downtown. So we need to go out into these communities and connect the academy with the people within these neighborhoods so they can see that, all right, although people within the, uh, the higher ups that are in the academy are really pushing y'all out, there are still some of us within it that can try to help them try to curb this thing here. And the only way we can do that is finding out what they need and what they want and to then use our resources to help. And oral history is a great way to do that. We have an after-school program, um, and it's the first uh, community-based alternative to incarceration program in the state of South Carolina. And so with the Department of Juvenile Justice System, um, we are having girls and youth like, referred to our program um, instead of them having to go to, go to prison, go to jail. Um, they can come to our programs instead. And we really just feel like youth voices are often not shared, not captured. And since the beginning of our organization, which was in 2011, We've really been working toward helping to uplift the voices of girls and trans youth in Charleston because we feel like their stories and what they have to say are, are important and it matters um, when youth are often, you know, kind of like dismissed or not taken seriously. Being here at this workshop, uh, hopefully I can bring back to the organization a way that we can kind of document the stories of not only our organizers, but the youth that we work with. I'm from South Africa and come from a tradition of oral history. Coming here and learning about preservation in the culture connects me to my own uh, family in South Africa and my past. And what brought me to the workshop is that I have this desire to have preservation of the history of St. Barnabas. And actually, St. Barnabas was the first Lutheran church in the low country to receive African-Americans. 
We have a lot of older members that can still give us a lot of information about the beginning and things that are very useful to our younger generation. So I want to start an oral uh, history um, library for the congregation as a gift. It's fascinating to hear all the different reasons that people were there and where they were coming from. Did you get a chance to talk with any of those people anymore, or were there favorite stories that you heard? I guess I really liked talking to Jen Stevens because oral histories, especially with youth, is something that I really haven't thought a lot about. And thinking about how to channel, especially because her program, Girls Rock Charleston, is an alternative to incarceration. And it's the really the only one like it in the state and how she wants to think about oral history and songwriting as connected as a way to channel youth stories. And I thought that was really neat. And so I think we'll close out this segment with a short conversation I had with Marina Lopez before I said goodbye to Charleston. And she's talking about why these projects keep her hopeful. I am rediscovering conform I work and I go back to listen to the stories that we have been uh, recording. And when I started doing this project, it was pretty much like an affirmation, like I felt that the um, stories of my community were not told or were told you know like like it's a you know very common theme that the stories are being told for somebody else and not for for their own community we see the power of those stories when they are repeat and they are and share and to move with the needs of the community i cannot separate those things too much you know that i want to uh, collect the stories because i think that they are powerful to move the issues that we need to keep working on do you feel hopeful? Yes, I am. I, I, and yes, I am. I am not cynical. I am concerned. And sometimes I am very sad and as everybody discouraged sometimes for the things that happen. And that is the power that I find in these kind of meetings that again and again, I found power in, in our own humanity, in, you know, in the basic goodness of people and getting together with people that is just basically good and we could move things that are important so for me if I just keep reading the newspaper or uh, listening to the radio and that is the only thing that I do that would be very sad and I would be hope uh, you know hopeless but just by meeting with the people on the ground that is what keeps the hope uh, alive it's a wonderful place Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, now go and enjoy your life. So for our final segment, we're going to dip into the archives of the Southern Oral History Program. This is a brief excerpt from an interview with Linda Upton Hill, She was interviewed as part of the Long Women's Movement in the American South Project when teams of interviewers went to eastern Tennessee, among other places, to interview mostly women to find out how feminism and the women's movement unfolded in that area in the 1960s and 70s and what it meant to to those women. 
Linda Upton Hill was born in Mississippi in 1954, and she had moved to East Tennessee in the 1970s to study music at Knoxville College. We interviewed her because she had become involved with Carpetbag Theater, which was a professional, multi-generational ensemble company dedicated to producing new works and to giving voice to the issues and dreams of people who had been silenced by racism, classism, sexism, ageism, homophobia, and other forms of oppression. Linda, in this interview, talks about the role that storytelling can play in movement building. Remember, you can listen to the whole interview with Linda Upton Hill if you go to our website, sohp.org. You'll find a link on our podcast page. I felt I need to stay here to bring closure and... Although I have been, again, so blessed that, that I have had opportunity to, to, to mentor children, teach, and, and uh, help people accomplish whatever the creative expression they wanted. Uh, I worked with a woman named Elizabeth Kerr-Reich, and she had developed a system of tutoring that was based on creative drama activities to help teach reading. And I used to be, go to the different schools and do art res, artisan residence work. So I, here I am even today working in a classroom with a, in a teacher's classroom and I have an opportunity to help young people make sense out of what they're being asked to learn and, and learn procedures that they can be in charge of and learn to construct their own scaffolding. Uh, and I loved what I decided to go, but I realized to go back in the theater, I loved the work we were doing, you know, and, and learning the names and the formal terminology and the relationships of all these elements of theater and all the things that I've been doing. And, oh, and we brought in South African playwright, Lena Mshope. And uh, she, was her, she was from the trans sky by birth. And she talks about uh, being taken away from her grandmother in the city and brought back to the country, essentially, because her mother was convinced that if girls were going to have any life, they had to be trained to be wives. And this mess of going to school was out of order. I must have, every culture must have that. Every culture must have that. And so she gets taken away. Her grandmother continues to keep a little chest in every year, a new dress, how besides she might have been. But when, she's, when, when she gets old enough to, to seek out her grandmother and come back to Durban and look for her, she's passed away. But she finds that she, oh, that was a powerful piece. So, so I guess what I'm saying is it was the storytelling, the telling of people's stories. If, if there was anything I had to do with movement, with, of political and social change nature, it was because I could interpret and deliver your story in a way that helped others own the meaning of what you felt and what it meant to you and what it did to you. 
And so I think that's why it's difficult for me to say, you know, this was, this was how I was involved in activism because it didn't feel like that. I was helping people. There's a law that says collecting and arranging other people's things. That's the work for me. And that is, that's my work. That's what I do. We hope that if you are already doing organizing work, that this has reinvigorated you in some way or given you new tools to think about that work. Or if you're really excited about oral history and maybe thinking about ways to take it outside of the academy, maybe this has given you some tools. But either way, we hope you keep listening to Press Record. And we really hope you subscribe on iTunes <laughs> and tell your friends to subscribe and your family and the people you're organizing with. And that's, that's it for September. Stay tuned for the next installment of our mini series next month, where we tackle oral history and politics and fellow oral historians Look for Rachel and me at the 50th annual meeting of the Oral History Association in Long Beach, California. We'll both be there and I will be talking about press record. So if you want more information or maybe want to be featured down the road, come find us. Thanks for listening to Press Record, the podcast from the Southern Oral History Program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. This episode was produced and edited by Carol Prince and our new SOHP intern, Tony Liu. Special thanks to Dan Kerr, Marina Lopez, Carrie Taylor, Darren Lee Calhoun II, Jennifer Stevens, Amanda Halling, Tuli Beresford, and the Citadel Oral History Program. And to Diane Steinhaus of UNC's Music Library for helping us find a temporary place to record this podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and SoundCloud. And to find more information or listen to the full version of interviews featured in this episode, check out our website at sohp.org backslash podcast. We want to hear from you. Email us at pressrecordsohp at gmail.com. You can tweet to carol at Carol underscore prince number two or to me at rf sideman that's rf s is in sam eid man or to us at sohp oral history thanks for listening and see you next time on press record